God, we love you. Thank you for this community of people, for your great mercy and love in our lives. Praise and thank you for your word and for the great story of Israel that we find ourselves taking our place in as your people, as your body. So, Lord, uh, I do pray for grace for us, for your, your mercy and your favor to be upon us as we seek to um, discover what you have for us. We want to take our place more firmly and confidently in your story. Yes, it's in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen. Um, okay, friends. So I think we've said, we've shared a little bit of this uh, about why this is important. Whoa. Hi, Nancy. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> there we go. Yay. Welcome. Um, we shared a little bit about why we're doing uh, this series, and I thought it would be good up front to kind of name how we're all coming into this conversation, because one of the things I'm going to talk about even this Sunday is how the creation story that we have in um, primarily Genesis 1 and 2, but also in other places in the Old Testament, uh, doesn't just drop out of nowhere, but it drops into a place. There's people who are asking questions, who want, who need, there's a reason why uh, this story is recorded. There's a reason why it's recorded in the way it's recorded. And it's to help people get their bearings in a particular time and place. So in order for us then to maybe get the most out of this class, it'd be good to hear kind of where we are coming from uh, in our stories. And uh, so that's why we're doing this series. We think it's important to have a good handle on uh, how creation frames our story as Christians. Uh, and how we live between creation and new creation. So, uh, yeah, maybe uh, maybe we can just get started here. I sent I sent these three questions on GroupMe. I'll read them for us, and then um, how about we? I'll just kind of throw it out and see who wants to share. The three questions were, uh, what is a pressing question that you have about creation or new creation that you're hoping to get clarity on? Uh, maybe you're counting down the days to the rapture and you're hoping to fine tune your second coming clock, etc. What are pressing questions you have or a pressing question you have? Something that bothers you, or you're not quite settled. Um, the rapture thing was a joke. I'll make lots of rapture jokes. Just want you to know that. So I hope that's okay. Uh, number two, what fear or doubt do you have about this topic? Um, so there's a, there's a lot of uh, weight put on uh, the creation story to do work. And there's, uh, I, my experience is there's often a lot of fear with what happens if we have a different creation story than I thought. Or there's a lot of weight put on the end of the story. And what happens if everything doesn't end the way I've been told? So uh, I'd love to hear either if, you, if you've um, 
uh, grown up in that? And this is a third question. Like, what have you been told about creation, new creation and scripture that maybe you're struggling to believe or that you've undergone a change in how you see things? Um, and so maybe question two and three are connected or maybe they're not. So, uh, I, I, I could talk for an hour. You guys know that about me, but I would love to hear, uh, like why you're here in this class. Maybe one of these three questions helps get at that. Maybe there's something else stirring for you. So let's, let's start sharing. Who'd like to share first? Unmute yourself when you share. And then you can remute yourself when you're done. I think for me, there's a, a lot of things I am trying to unwind. Um, I not only grew up in a conservative church culture, but I was also homeschooled. So grew up with like Ken Ham and Southern Baptist curriculum. Um, and so there's a lot of things I feel like I'm trying to unlearn um, about the way I was raised. Um, and, and even in the culture I'm in now, I'll just give you an example, which isn't necessarily about creation, but we were talking at work just this week about, um, how people used to die, you know, when they were like 30 or 40, not that long ago. And then somebody made the comment about how, well, Methuselah lived to like 900 years. And I was like, I don't know if I, you know, like if that, if I believe that's true or not. And, um, cause I'm like, I just, I think the Bible, like, I think it's, there's truth in that. I don't know if I believe that it's a fact. Um, and then I was told that like, well, we have to be really careful how we take that because people nowadays just pick and choose what they believe about the Bible. And that's a really slippery slope. So, yes. So uh, give us, uh, for those of us who don't know, um, Becky, give us the, the 30 to 60 second on what the Ken Ham thing means. Mm. Well, have you ever been to, like heard of the creation museum? I've heard of it. Okay. It's a museum over in Ohio that talks about the story of creation. And honestly, um, I was talking with a friend about this recently about how we feel like we really missed our chance to go there. We would have had to gone there a long time ago in order to believe some of the propaganda. Mm. Okay. There's this picture of, um, they take you through the story of like how um, desolate and bad the world is. Um, and it's full of like, of like new stuff and just like just really like dark stuff. And then it goes through the story of creation and takes it very literally where there's no room at all to interpret it any other way. And I would say that a lot of people I'm around subscribe to that belief. Yeah. Okay. All right. So there's a, a fairly narrow literalistic reading of the creation story as it sounds like as history. Yes. So the creation narrative in is, is history. And so we interpret things like ages and days, et cetera, as literal history. And, and that's something you grew up in that that you and you feel like you still straddle that world um well yeah i would say that a lot of people I, i'm around are still in that and i also until fairly recently didn't know there was another way to believe and still 
like actually be a solid Christian. You know, it was like always woohoo people over here don't believe this way and they don't have a high view of scripture or like so far left. Um, and I'm like in my, in my work atmosphere, um, they like, I'm, I'm like the closet liberal, except for they all know I'm liberal kind of. Yes. But they will also often say like, Oh, there goes our, our liberal talking about this. Okay. That's so, great. Maybe so if, the, maybe if you didn't have a Bernie Sanders neck tattoo, Becky. I know, right? <laughs> so, and I'm hearing the, the slippery slope argument as well, that there's this fear that if I, if I read Genesis as something other than seven 24 hour days, eventually I will not believe in Jesus. Right. Right. You're going to support all kinds of other things. Um, and I'm, I just, I, I, I hold back and I want to be like, so you wear jewelry and eat bacon. Where does that fit in? Because if we're going to pick Slippery Bible, slope. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, you already pick and choose what you believe. You're just picky and choosy about what you believe about what you believe. Okay. So. Yes. Yes. So we're hearing good. We're hearing uh, up until recently, you thought I either need to buy this whole Ken Ham bag of creation or become uh, a pagan. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that. Good. Good. Anybody uh, want to share? I don't know if that provokes anybody else's. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think for me, the fear is actually gender roles that come out of the creation story for me. Um, Ironically, when I went to a, so before I went to a Christian university, I was very much like the literalist, like, oh, it's a seven day creation story. Um, but then all my Christian professors basically told me <laughs> there are other ways to look at scripture, which was really wonderful. But actually what still came out in my Christian school, and I think in other churches I've been in, are like the gender role questions or just like interpretation of gender roles from the creation story and then specifically Eve's curse um and just how like everything is because of Eve and if it wasn't for the woman you know we would all be in paradise <laughs> so for yeah. me that's just like Ugh, uh, okay you know <laughs> okay so I would love to hear more let's about talk that. about creation <laughs> Josie, that's really helpful. I'd love to hear more about that. Will you, will you give us, again, the 30 to 60 second, um, what, is, what is this gender role thing you're talking about? And how does, like, what are some specifics about that that at least make up your imaginary for what that would mean? Okay. So, I feel like the the actual creation story shows us about the beauty of um, man and woman. And in many ways, like our one another and with God. But then in church, Eve's 
because of what Eve does in the creation story and the curse that the curses that she is given, I feel like churches immediate, immediately say, well, like, because of what she does and because of her curse, like, there are these roles she will always want after the man, uh, meaning man will always have headship, things like that. Um, she will never, like, be empowered. But for me, that's her curse. And that's not the kingdom um, through Jesus. So anyway, I feel like sometimes churches still live in the um, cursed world that they've made up in their heads um, with Eve in terms of like gender roles and such. And I would rather live in the paradise dynamic. Um, being a helper alongside Adam. So there's just, you know, I don't know if I'm saying everything. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I get what but. you're saying. I think what you're saying is there's sort of, there's, there's red, uh, one, of, one of the ways to read the, the creation narrative is that there is God-ordained roles uh, of men and women. And in, in your experience, a lot of, what's defined as those roles comes more from Genesis three, which is the curse rather than from Genesis one and two. Right. That's right. Yes. And so then the question would be maybe the interpretive question or the ethical question would be, uh, does God prescribe the curse as God ordained roles? Right. Or yeah. 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 Kind of tag along with that. Actually, what I was going to say is that um, for the answer to the third question is what I've learned or something that's changed about me is reading the curse descriptively rather than prescriptively. Um, hmm. Say more about that, Isaiah. That the church, that the, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's right along the same lines what Josie was saying, but just that, um, that, the curse in Genesis three is descriptive of the way the world is not prescriptive of the way, the way God wants the world. And I mean, maybe that's like, Oh, duh, of course. <laughs> but I think a lot of people read uh, the curse as prescriptive, like, well, you know, Adam and Eve sinned. And so this is how the way the world has to be. Um, and to try to fight against that or to try to, um, you know, yeah, say that that's the, the way the world is, but it doesn't have to be that way necessarily, um, and definitely isn't that way in the kingdom, uh, is, you know, it's not worth fighting against, but... Um, right. Yeah, but that's just my add-on to what Josie said. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, we're, we are going to talk about this. It's probably not until October, but we are going to talk about this. This is really important stuff. The other thing that I heard you say, Josie, uh, that I, I, I have a awareness of, but probably not the sensitivity that you and others in this call do, is the way that Genesis is used against women. Yes. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen. Has anyone read Paradise Lost? Amen. Amen. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. Uh, you know, and, and you know, uh, on a cursory reading, St. Paul doesn't help this, right? With some of his writings about how Eve was deceived, not Adam, right? Etc. And, and, and frankly, there has been a long tradition in the church up until this past century, and by past century, I mean 20th, that held that part of this distinction and role and office separation between men and women was an ontological distinction between men and women, meaning women were more easily deceived. Like ontologically means like in their being. Part of what it means to be a woman is you're stupider. Like this has been taught and held and actually used as an argument to sort of create a justification for why, for why a woman could teach a child but not an adult. Which, you know, let's let the deception run rampant among the kids, just not the adults. That makes total sense to me. I think another part of that too is this idea that woman is created specifically as a helper for a man. Yeah. And so for me, like it was a life changing thing for me when this was maybe four or five years ago, somebody pointed out to me that that's not what that was about. Like God created community in that, not, not a marriage, not a husband and wife, not like a woman is there to help a man, which to me was a life changing thing because as somebody who is single, it's like, I have no place in this picture. Like if God created me to help a man i'm not living into my role as a woman then mm. which i don't think that i fully thought that, that way but it also i felt that i felt other people thought that way about me yes becky yes uh we're going to talk about that as well and in particular this the hebrew word ezer which means helper uh we're going to see that a helper is a badass like God's an Ezer. And so it's not someone who does the dishes and rubs the feet after a long day at the office. That's not what it means to be a helper. Put, put those toes away, Joel. Yeah. Uh, really good stuff. You guys, Josie, thank you for sharing that. Isaiah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Just, just jump in. Just to chime in on what Becky said. Um, the last part, you also then run into the issue of in Genesis, you've got two different creation stories going on in the first and second chapter, where in one, men and women are created at the same time. And in the other, you have the narrative that, that Becky was describing. So just another issue that comes up in what do we do with this? And how does this, how does this inform our creation narrative not that they're competing but um yeah so has that been so help me understand then joel for you uh was that a like you know there was a, probably a moment when you realized hey uh in one genesis story uh animals haven't showed up yet and the other genesis story animals have showed up yeah there's there's a number of distinctions between the two stories like, is that, does that fall into like the fear and doubt category or does that fall into a different category for you? A, 
Um, it did. It certainly used to be um, to, to the point that maybe it was just something that you just kind of ignore and you just kind of go, well, it's, you know, that it, it's something that needs to be fixed. So we either just sort of gloss over it or, you know, but we don't acknowledge that, oh, maybe there's two different stories being told here that are trying to tell a bigger story and it's not a problem to be fixed. So that I have sort of already been through a little bit of, um, before I started, you know, going to seminary classes and stuff, I'd already sort of been opening myself up to, maybe I've been trying to read this and understand this in a way that's not really the way it was intended to be read and to be understood. Um, and then, yeah, so. It's certainly where I'm coming from. And I think similar to, I think also what Becky said, um, I find that the biggest challenge now is I still exist in a world where a great deal of the people, uh, relationships that I think we have in our lives, friends that we either went to college with or friends that we used to do ministry with, um, still, um, still view things um, in that way. Um, still are maybe gung-ho about uh, going to check out that giant ark that Ken Ham <laughs> built, you know, because take that, take that heathens. See, it can be done. Yeah. But you know, that's... <laughs> yes. You can literally fit every animal on the ark and it happened like that. Okay, you guys. Okay. Oh, no. Yeah. All right. I know that I just have to say, I, I tend to be a little crass and insensitive with my sarcasm. Uh, but I do, I really do want to create a safe space for any of you seven dayers out there. Uh, if anybody, I mean, honestly, like, uh, you know, we're going to, uh, Ben and I are going to talk through like a, uh, so I'm owning, I've set the tone for like joking about these things, but I don't want to create an inhospitality for yes. people to lose. And that's, so, yeah, part of where I was going with, with what I was saying is that I felt, I feel like it, it, that's now the way that it feels in conversation with people that hold a different view than myself is that it can't be a conversation. It has to be, um, it has to be, yeah, yeah. And I, and that's, that doesn't feel right. I think for a lot of this stuff, I don't know what I believe. I just know that I'm, I'm not certain I believe what other people around me believe. And there's not space for that. There seems to be, you have to believe this way. And if you have questions or thoughts or doubts or another way, that's not acceptable. And a lot of this stuff, I'm like, I don't know. I would just like room and space to not necessarily subscribe to all these literal things. Because I really, most of it, I have no clue what I actually think about it. Which is why I'm excited about this series. Yes. Um, I'll just say a, a couple things here. I think um, I grew up uh, believing the literal seven-day um, creation story. I didn't have a problem with that growing up. And I think as I began to understand more about that the Bible is story and a lot of story um, and that story isn't necessarily about facts and um literal facts that uh there create there was this space 
for being able to say, oh, so I wonder maybe if creation wasn't exactly seven days. And so that's kind of started this, these, these questions. And there was this bit of a fear for a long time of should I talk to people about this or not? And then we found people in Japan that we could talk to. But we also were in this um, place where one of the guys, one of the missionaries who worked with in Japan, he like is building this creation museum place in Japan. <laughs> so, um, so he's all excited now he's retired and he's here in Indiana and he goes, he takes groups of Japanese uh, tourists to go down and see the ark and whatnot. So, it's this tension place where uh, just what um, Becky was saying, you know, who can you talk to uh, or who can you be real with and who can you um, pose your, your questions to and who do you need to just like be quiet around and not say anything? Yeah, that's okay. That's okay to just listen and, and not have to put your opinion in. Yeah. That's okay too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Not everything has so to be So another place is what you're saying. Not everything has to what? Has to be a battle. Like not every no, not every conversation no. or disagreement has to be a battle, yeah. No. And and as a as a Enneagram one, you know, I I mean I, I have this need to be right. And so that has been a bit of a battle of being able to say, hey, it's okay that I don't know. And I don't know, and I don't have to set you right because I don't know the right answer either. And that's, there's been a space of freedom in that uh, actually for me. So um, just want to say one other thing that I lived uh, as a missionary in Japan as an very much working equally with my husband um, very much. So in leadership uh, and, you know, church pastoral leadership and yet under our mission, I was considered a volunteer as the woman. And mm. so my husband was the employee and I was the volunteer mm. for 30 years. So, um, yeah. And, and a lot of it came out of scriptural basis for that kind of thinking. So, yes, it's a hard place. That is, yeah. 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 And I questioned it fairly often, <laughs> but, you know, it would be like, oh, Nancy, you know, <laughs> oh, Nancy's, Nancy's got something to say again, you know, mm. so, yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Nancy. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to, we're going to dive in a little bit to, to sort of men and women and and what we can know and what we can't know from Genesis about that. And just from, uh, not just Genesis, but from that created order about that. But I will say that um, if anyone's interested, uh, Ben and I do another podcast called the Gravity Leadership Podcast. And we are talking about that right now on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. So, uh, and we're not pulling any punches. <laughs> For example, on the last one uh, that just got released today, we dove into probably the three thorniest uh, scripture passages as it regards men and women. Without notes, we just sort of off the cuff tried to tried to talk about hermeneutically how to how to read those things. So uh, I, felt, I felt pretty. Uh, I did a lot of those like emojis 
one of those, uh, you know, like teeth, showing lots of teeth emojis as I posted it on social media. I was like, well, here we go. Tell so, a B minus. Yeah. <laughs> Story of my life. Okay, uh, great. Nancy, you said something in there I wanted to, oh yes. I don't know where this is gonna work its way into our class. Uh, so I just wanna put, like a, I wanna put this out there. Somewhere in, uh, somewhere, somewhere in the enlightenment, we began to link truth with historical fact. But for millennium, humans have understood that historical fact is one genre, a uh, way of communicating truth. So for instance, poetry communicates truth, but none of us demand that poetry behave the way a police report at a crime scene does. Both of those communicate facts, truth, both of those communicate truth. One just does it using a different kind of language. And so uh, most people think that Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and some people would say uh, Genesis 1 through 11, uh, is, 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 is not a, well, very few people would say it's a, like a police report. Um, it, it, it looks like a saga myth poetry. Um, but that, does, that shouldn't freak us out because uh, humans have always communicated truth through saga myth poetry. So one of the things we want to do in, this, in our time together is not demand that our creation stories or our new creation stories, which we probably need to talk about tonight as well, that they behave the way a modern 21st century person wants them to. We don't demand that they perform for us and give us what we want, but rather we have to learn how to read them for what they were intended to do. That takes great humility and hard work. But I just want to put that, I want to make sure that that's named and mentioned because I think it relates to what you're talking about, Nancy. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but yeah. Anybody else want to get in on this creation stuff? Uh, I can say something. Um, I grew up with a conservative type of background and viewpoint uh, growing up. And then um, I had a brother who went to seminary who's five years older than I am. And um, I took an archaeology of the Bible class at a secular university and, uh, and then went to seminary. And so through all of that, um, my perspective changed a lot. And um, learning a lot about ancient Near East creation stories and stuff really helped a lot with understanding it. And, um, and then I you know, was a pastor in Lafayette and uh, talked to one of my neighbors who was a leader of the biggest church in town, which had a very conservative viewpoint. And the first thing when he found out I was a pastor, the first thing he thought it was important to talk about and let me know was that he was a literal seven day creation person. And, uh, and so what, what I would like to grow into more is how to have good conversations with people who want to quickly determine if you're a Christian like me or not, and how to have a conversation with people um, who believe it in a different way. Um, 
rather than just right up front saying, okay, so we're not the same. We're not, you're maybe not a Christian. So, yes. right? so there's a, there's a, I'd like to be on the same team still with Christians who don't believe the same way I do and, and be able to have good conversations about that stuff without it being so black and white, maybe. And contentious a bit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, friends, what becomes the litmus test, right? Uh, typically, uh, when pe- we give people litmus tests, it isn't the litmus test that scripture gives. You know, like I've yet to meet like a really serious Bible person who's like, look, I just want to get this out of the way. Uh, I don't care how good a person you are, or how much you know, but if you, if you don't love like Jesus, it's all rubbish. <laughs> it's never that. It's like, uh, you know, what do you believe about seven-day creation? Or uh, are you a mid-tribber or a post-tribber? Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. It was a mic drop. Ryan's out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just noticing some general alignment here. Most of us come from a more conservative background than we would maybe conservative meaning um, leaning towards seeing the, the creation story as um, more of a literal historical happening. And we take numbers and days and we, they're corresponding exactly to how we see those things now. And if we don't hold to that, then we're on a slippery slope to become uh like those liberals. Yeah. So it's interesting that we're kind of all coming out of that. We'll need to pay attention to that. It'll mean we'll have a bias and a prejudice and we want to be sensitive to that. Um, I'm curious, I know maybe there's less heat in the traditions we've come from, but um, in talking to, I know many of my friends, there's even more heat on the, and Spencer seems to be missing, but I would uh, presume that he may be able to speak to this. Uh, On the end times, right? New creation, revelation, Jesus returning, and uh, war horses and blood and and that kind of thing. So uh, the same three questions, what, what what kind of fears do you have about that? What have you learned that maybe you have questions about now? Where, how have you shifted in your understanding of how it's all going to end? I can share something. Um, I was thinking about this uh, today. I, I grew up, uh, like many of you, in a little bit more of a conservative environment. Um, and I remember a couple things that I remember. Uh, I remember our church having a little bit of a crisis when 88 reasons Christ will come back in 88 uh, came out. Does anybody, does anybody remember that? Y'all too young for that? Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> um, you were too, yeah. So I think Becky uh, was saying peace. She was just giving us the peace sign. Just, well, thank you just encouraging me. Becky wasn't saying she was two years old in 1988. No, that can't be right. Peace that can't be right. Anyway, so I guess I was, uh, I don't know, I can't do the math, uh, 12 or 13. Um, so anyway, so I remember, I remember my parents, uh, 
my parents didn't really get into it, but they were trying to pastorally lead a bunch of freaked out people in our church through. Uh, and I remember as a kid sort of being struck by, I didn't understand why people were freaking out. So I thought that was an interesting, it was just an interesting memory that came back to me of like my parents explaining to me why people were freaking out and, you know, that kind of thing. So that was very much a part of it. Um, and the other thing, the other thing I thought of uh, is, is something that shifted for me where I guess I had always assumed um, that like the people who go to heaven are the people who accept Jesus. That was the term accept Jesus as their Lord and savior before they die, which means they repent of their sins and they ask Jesus into their heart. Once they do that, if they're sincere about it and they do that before they die, then they go to heaven. If not, uh, then they go to hell. Um, and I remember that shifting for me uh, when I read, I think it was one of Dallas Willard's books. I think it was The Divine Conspiracy. A lot shifted for me when I read that book. I read it in about, I think it was 1999 or 2000. And um, his phrase in there that shifted uh, things for me was, because he'd been detailing this God of love, uh, this God who was you know, characterized by love, um, this God who does not want anyone to perish you know, on a technicality. Um, and so uh, he just said, like, I'm convinced that God will let anyone into heaven who can possibly stand it. Um, and there's a, lot, there's a little bit to unpack there about what, what do you mean, stand it? <laughs> um, but I remember that sort of like breaking things open for me. I was like, oh, that's what I believe. That's what I believe. I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take that. And I sort of, I just felt this freedom to kind of let that, let that story go. Like, okay, that it's not necessary to believe that. That's not the impetus for evangelism that I need. Uh, I can let that story go. I can really embrace that uh, God, God's going to welcome anybody who can possibly stand it. Of course he is. Of course he is. So those are two stories came to mind for me. Yeah. I have a, I have a couple as well. Um, one is I have a really vivid memory uh, when I was probably, I want to say like 12 or 13 and we were, the office building my dad was at, we were cleaning it for some reason and I couldn't find anyone else in my family who was with me. And I remember running through there screaming because I was convinced the rapture had happened and I was left. And like, it was so incredibly traumatic I was by the time my mom found me I was hysterical absolutely hysterical because I was just convinced the rapture to come I was so traumatizing yeah uh, I've heard I Becky I've heard this from other people too yeah um it's insane that we do this to people <laughs> the other thing I want to say is I was actually the last couple days I've been at an event for work and this morning, this lady was talking and sharing a story about how her brother passed away earlier um, this year and how it was so hard for her and how they're a church that wants to reach the lost and how it was so hard for her because she is certain that her brother's going to be in hell. And I just like was so incredibly sad for her. I wanted to go and hug her and be like, I don't think that that's true. And I yeah. just, my heart was aching for her because 
I don't know for sure what I believe about heaven and hell, but I think that that's a terrible way to have to live, to be convinced that your brother is in hell because he didn't follow the right life that we think he should have followed on earth. Yeah. Good. So there's a couple of things here then, uh, Becky, I'm hearing. One is this idea of the rapture, um, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, at some point. Um, <clears throat> Very new idea, BT dubs, introduced in the late 1800s through dispensational theology, and it's based on a misreading of the Thessalonia discourse. So we can we'll talk about what's going on when uh, Christ returns and the dead raised and they meet him in the air, right? This is what we hear. What's going on there? Um, it's uh, spoiler alert. It's not really what dispensationalists think of as the rapture. Um, but yeah, that's, I think I, I've heard number, a number of stories, Becky, of kids who were traumatized by thinking the rapture had happened. Uh, um, I, I have, we had, I had friends in seminary, their youth group would have rapture practice and they would literally like sit in their chair and they jump up, they jump out of their chair. Um, and sh yeah, what happened? So her, her, so her husband, her husband, her husband was in class with me, and uh, uh, I would carry on this sign. He would get up and go to the bathroom, and I put this sign under his laptop, so it was like, like he couldn't see it, but like every, like the teacher could see it. And the sign said, uh, "Warning: In case of rapture, this laptop will be unmanned." And uh, I did that for like three weeks until he figured out I did it. Anyway, all that to say, that's pretty uh, Alicia, did you have rapture practice? <laughs> no, but I, I've heard of the, um, the places where you can put your dogs just in case it happens. Yeah, there's a website out there where you can sign up for your animals to be taken care of, uh, where non-believers have agreed like, okay, I'll, I'll be a part of this thing and they'll take care of your dogs. And when the rapture happens, <laughs> that is brilliant. Why haven't I thought about this? <laughs> if I was a non-believer, I think that if this thing happens, this will probably get me some points with that guy that left me behind. So it's probably a good idea. There's gotta be some like, is there like a monthly subscription that somebody's making bank off of crazy yeah, Christians? Yeah. There's got to be some smarmy uh, single dude out there who's like, do you have unbelieving wives? I'll take care of them. You know? And he's like, just give me their, give me their social security number. I'll take care of them. those Jezebels. Uh, all right. Okay. All right. Uh, anyway, sorry. There's so many jokes abound here. Um, but the other thing you said, Becky, is this sense that um, the thing that struck me about what you shared is that this person is certain about the eternal state of somebody who's passed away. Um, and we'll talk more about this. Like, I think, I think this is probably the biggest, so all, so I'll just say, uh, there's a huge, huge church all of you have heard of, and they did a series on end-time eschatology. And the pastor at this church 
basically started this series by, hey, everybody, everybody thinks Revelation is so hard to understand and end times are so confusing and it's just a bunch of yada, yada, yada. I'm going to tell you exactly how it's going to go down. And that was the way he introduced the whole series. That's, basic, that's basically the opposite of what we're doing. Friend. Is it a local church? Nope. Okay. But they it is out of a local church, actually, around this area. Oh. Yeah. Well. We did a series on, and I stuck around because I wanted to know what they were going to say. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll just say, like, the, almost, almost the other opposite. I just say, personally, for me, the growth edge is the most here. Um, I, I came to Christ in college and was introduced to any kind of understanding about eschatology through the Left Behind series. Like, that was blowing up when I was... And I remember being a waiter at Alcatraz, and one of the waitresses read, this, read the first book, and she sat down with me. She knew I was a Christian. And she's like, is this, is this what's going to happen? And I was like, yes. This is how it's all going down. And she just was like scared and like sober-minded. Um, but anyway, I, I, think, I think I realized that, that that entire way of seeing things was bound up in, like I said, dispensationalism, which is a way of reading scripture through different, God, God, isn't, God doesn't work in one way. He works in lots of different ways, depending upon the time and the people. And uh, most, it's mostly been abandoned, although there are some people who still hold on to that. So uh, I've always had a really uneasy, I would say my growth edge is the most in not understanding necessarily like how to read Revelation. I think I've got a, I think I've just read enough books to figure that out. But in, term, in terms of um, what I'm realizing, and we'll talk about this, we'll, we'll preach through this, how complex and multi, um, scripture is not univocal in, in what happens at the judgment. There's a complex voice that scripture has about what's going on, about how it looks, about uh, all that. So you've got, you've got a lot of different, theories or ideas about how it's all going to go down. And I think that probably what we'll say is here's here, here are the options and here's what we confess in the creed. <laughs> like, um, so anyway, I guess that all I'd say is like, it's almost the opposite of I'm going to let you, I'm going to give you every answer you ever wanted about how it's all going to go down. And I think what we're going to say is here's, here's all the ways scripture talks about it. And they can't, they can't all be true. So. And, and it's not even necessary to pick one. You know, it's not like you got to pick one. It's just, here's the possibilities. And then here's, here's what we confess. And here's what we, here's what we hope for as Christians. Can I share? Please. Yeah, so I feel like a big question I have that I'm hopeful for this class um, is, well, a little background, you know, like everyone else. I grew up in a dispensational, pre-trib, pre-millennial, you know, rapture, excited for left-behind reading house. Um, 
And uh, luckily we weren't like super obsessed over it, but it was like, man, it's still part of it. Um, and then also kind of going along with that, I feel like, uh, like the goal of the Christian life was definitely to like um, witness to people so that people would be saved from hell. I don't really follow the pre-trib, pre-millennial thing. Uh, regarding the sharing of the gospel, like, I mean, I, I believe in the sharing of the gospel. Um, like, exactly, like, who's in and who's out of the boat. Not entirely sure. I don't, not sure I really even care that much. Um, in terms of, like, parsing it down. Like, I care who's in and who's out of the boat, but I don't care to, like, try and figure it out. But all that having said, like, I feel like a big question I have is I feel like once my reading of uh, the rapture and end times changed a lot, um, I feel like I had a hard time like understanding all the times in Paul and the other passages of scripture where it talks about like Christian hope. Um, and like, you know, that hope which you're called, the hope, uh, there are all these places in scripture where it talks about hope. And I've read a bunch of books like Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright and that have helped a lot, but I feel like it's either A, something I always forget, or B, something that just like doesn't mesh with how I'm thinking about the world. Um, so I really, that's something I'm interested in figuring out is like, uh, what does it mean to have hope? And I know it's, I know in my bones, it's tied to like our end, right? Our, our not end is in like necessarily like the end of time, but like our end is in like our purpose, our, our, uh, what we're made for. So, which I think is all is big part of this, you know, end times conversation or, you know, revelation conversation. So yeah, that's a question I have. Yes. So what does it mean to live in hope and how does that change? The, the thing that occurred to me is Isaiah, how does that change the way that I share the gospel? If it isn't like to get you in the boat quick before you die or Jesus comes back. Is it, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah, that, and also just how does it change how I, how I live and how I approach my life in general, so. Yeah, yeah. great, man. Good question. Great question. Yeah, other thoughts? I got one thought or a question. Um, so I also kind of inherited the same similar type of uh creation background i mean the, the entire background that it seems to be shared by a lot of people um this is more so just kind of like a curious thing not that i think it matters a ton but um you know i i'm not i wouldn't call i'm not a seven day six day creationist you know what it was at one point and then all that kind of stuff uh but for me what mattered to me was consistency in how i interpret scripture and one of the questions that I haven't necessarily resolved, um, uh, not because I don't, I mean, kind of because I just don't really care. It doesn't bother me anymore, but it still is just a question that I'm just kind of curious is what do I do with Adam and Eve and genealogies that are saying the name of every single person that lived from person to person to person that at what point does it go from, you know, his like fact to poetry, like where is that line? And that's kind of like that question of Genesis one through eleven or one through three or things like that. But that's kind of curious. That's curious to me. Should I treat Adam and Eve as kind of um, uh, like a archetype or prototype, or I'm not sure whatever the right word is, or as like uh, 
historical figures? Should I treat that like an, an actual event or just an interpretation that kind of explains humanity as it is now and what God intends it to do sort of thing? I mean, I have a couple of my own thoughts and opinions on things, but you know, that's something I'm curious to get into. Yes. That's a great question, Scott. I think that's one of the things that keeps people in like fear. Like they kind of get the sense of like, yeah, this seven day thing seems really untenable, you know, seeing as like the universe looks 14 billion years old. Uh, you know, why would God create the world in seven days, 6,000 years ago, but then make the universe look so old? <laughs> you know, like those kind of things happen. But then, but then people get to the fact of like, hey, Jesus seemed to think Adam was a real person. So did Paul. If sin didn't enter through one person, did he enter through like some hominids in Africa 80,000 years ago? Like a group of 20,000 of them? Like, you know what I mean? Like there's these questions about how do we make the story fit together? So is, is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I think they're great questions. And I would say uh, the impulse is to just not ask them and to kind of stay, to kind of just, just keep your subscription to the Kim Han Museum. But I think the faithful thing, what we see the Jews doing in, in the way that they bring the canon, their canon together, is they are constantly wrestling with questions. I mean, that is the Old Testament. Prophets and priests wrestling. Sacrifice or mercy, right? Justice or ritual purity. Like, it's this constant tension wrestling, right? Half of the Old Testament, I, I overstate all the time. Half of the Old Testament is, is Israel wrestling with who is God and how do we understand him? So this multivocal witness of who God is. So, like, we can learn from the Jews that, like, the question isn't to sort of just retreat into absolute, uh, absolutism and simplicity. But it's to step into those questions and just stare them in the face. Right? Those are, those are questions we're going to ask. We'll have, probably have at least one, if not two, classes dedicated to, like, the implications of that. Yeah. Um, just real quick, in terms of housekeeping, we'll probably go to 915-ish. Uh, and so, but, but we're all adults. You don't need to like, you don't need permission to leave or a hall pass. So if you got to go, just go. And, uh, and I think my wife is going to go to sleep. Uh, we'll probably go to nine fifteen ish. Uh, we won't belabor it. We don't want half of that long, but I want to leave room for other people to share. If you have, um, experiences, questions as it relates to either new creation stuff or like Scott just shared from creation stuff. I have one more thing that bothers me. So I think I can get on board that like my feminist perspective definitely influences the way I read like the creation story and Eve. The one thing that I think regardless of perspective of men and women that bothers me in the Genesis story is why is knowing knowledge of good and evil so bad. <laughs> and like, why does God care even if she disobeyed? Why is this such a big deal? 
I don't know why, but it really bothers me. Just gonna throw that out there. So I don't know if we're gonna explore, like what does that even mean? Like knowledge of good and knowledge of evil, like in a more in-depth level, but I think that would be great for me because I know it just, it just doesn't sit well with me that like the story like hangs on this one thing that Eve did. And it's something that I really don't think is that big of a deal. And in fact, I think it's like, she wants to be like God. <laughs> Why is this bad? So I have tension there around the story. Yes. I love it. Love it. I think that's a great question, Josie. I think it, and I think, you know, you started by saying, I know I have this feminist perspective. But I honestly think that that's a question that probably is, is more apparent and available to somebody with a feminist perspective. It wouldn't be as apparent and available to somebody without. So I just want to affirm that like, you don't have to check. I, I'm just saying this for everybody. Um, for, uh, I'll just say it this way, for too long, like the white male patriarchal perspective has been God's perspective in the church. And like, that's rubbish. So like we can hear questions from other perspectives. We need it. So I'm just affirming that question. I think it's a really good one. And uh, Ben will explain it all later. Something that's interesting, by the way, just as you're thinking about what you want to share next. Something that's interesting is this concept of the fall, like you said, it all rests on this thing. This concept of the fall happening in like two verses is fairly new. In fact, the Hebrews, the Israelites, don't really show any awareness of what, how Christians see Genesis 1 through 3 in the Old Testament scriptures. So that's one thing. This is something, this is something that uh, because Jesus is the new Adam becomes important to Christians in a way that it wasn't important to Israelites. So that's, that's one, that's just one thing to, that I think influences how we answer that question. The other thing that influences the way we answer that question is I would advocate, I think uh, provincially, uh, that the fall isn't happening in Genesis 3. The fall is happening all the way through Genesis 11. And you actually have, a, you actually have this climax in Genesis 6 and this reopening of the floodgates so that pre-creation chaos reigns again. And there's actually another creation story happening when Noah gets off the ark. So you have, and then you have another fall. 
you know, the whole uh, after arc party with Noah and his daughters. It gets a little weird. So, like, you've got this, you got weird stuff happening right after the arc. And so I would just say, like, I do think that Eve and Christian spirituality, uh, I don't want to bag on him, but Augustine probably has a lot to do with this. Uh, like, she bears a lot of the brunt for this mistake. And it's not a theme in the Hebrew scriptures. And really, uh, I mean, Lemek was pretty rotten too. So. Yep. Anybody else want to share before we call it a night? I'll say one more thing. Um, something I want to spend more time on, I think, is um, – I guess with the question of hell, I mean, Becky kind of, we dug, dug into it a little bit, but I definitely, I think I realized, I don't think I realized how much time I actually spend thinking about that question. Um, I mean, now, I mean, just to put out where I'm at now, I mean, I'm, I'm now I'm completely away from any kind of eternal conscious torment, traditional uh, view. I would say, and now, and I, and I, when we talk about like fears and doubts and questions, like it, it's hard for me to talk about because it's kind of, um, and it's just kind of shunned as if like, you're crazy. You can't be right. You're really out to lunch now. Uh, you know, like I mean, I, I'm legit open to universalism to some sort of like anybody can be saved at any point in time and it's never too late and the door is always open sort of deal. Um, and I have like my sort of ways that I get to that. Um, but like, because it just brings up such, uh, I don't know, because you're attached to so many people that you care about and you don't know where they're going to go. It just kind of just, I don't know. I just feel it just is, it's just heavy because you don't know and, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't want to be wrong on that. And you want to, I mean, it matters to how you live now and how you treat people now. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Also, just to add, just to like, I don't think we're going to get into this, but also how, um, since we don't, since we're kind of not a rapture believing family, um, how we take care of the earth is super important. And that's something that like my heart just like is always thinking about. So my brain is always thinking about my heart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, Cause all, all these things matter to how we live now. Hugely. I mean, hugely. Yeah. Creation, your creation and new creation has t a ton to do with how we treat the earth. We think, you know? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Joel agrees. <laughs> that's, yeah. No, I that's think exactly what I was going to say. Um, and I've had a couple I mean, I, you know, I know people that have the attitude of, well, this is all just going to be destroyed anyways. So it's not our job to care for what we've been given. And that's, that's, a, that's a very real uh, way of thinking that still exists. Yeah. Yes. Yes, <clears throat> Alicia, I think it is a theme for both creation and new creation, and I do think we'll get into it. And um, 
Ben will probably answer every question. Again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I no, I mean I do I do think it's uh, there's a politis there's a politicization of anything that has to do with justice in our world today, and it drives me nuts. Yeah, it's almost like we have a new it's a, we have a new Marcion heresy, and we just cut out all the prophets, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Like that's the new, that's the new like fundamentalist heresies. We just get rid of anything that cares for the poor outside of my individual personal responsibility. And uh, there just is, there's just no basis for it. So like we're going to root and ground and what, what does it mean? What does it look like for us to, to live as, you know, caretakers and cultivators of creation um, and new creation. And then Scott, I'll just say, maybe we can end with this. Um, Part of uh, another, so if the litmus test in the beginning is a literal seven day, the litmus test at the end is eternal conscious torment. Uh, there's, there are churches that have that in their statement of faith. Yeah. Uh, denominations that won't ordain you unless you believe in it. So just real quick, eternal conscious torment is that the damned, the people who aren't in heaven, uh, will be uh, uh, consciously tormented for eternity, uh, meaning that they, their suffering never ceases and they're always conscious of it. And, um, and that's tied into God's glory. It highlights God's justice and his holiness because their sin is an eternal offense. Um, what Scott's talking about, universalism, uh, is more, uh, that's kind of a trigger word, Scott, just FYI, uh, trigger some people with that word. It's also called, um, <clears throat> um, unconditional reconciliation, um, is this thought that, uh, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and there's a fire that purifies depending upon your works in this life, which Paul seems to believe in some form of that. Um, Catholics have purgatory. Uh, if you don't die in mortal sin, uh, the purgatory is where you burn off all the extra sin calories. Uh, and then there's, Christian, there's a Christian version of this, of what you're talking about. Uh, and then there's a third option called conditional immortality or annihilationism, which essentially says that if you, because we're created in the image of God, if we choose separation from God as a settled permanent eternal state, we actually lose our ground of being. We actually lose our, we lose the ability to exist because we've rejected that which we're imaging. And so we just cease to be. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that I'm learning is I'm shocked at the plurality of faithful Christian people who hold these three views. That there isn't one voice in the church, nor has there ever been. I just didn't know that. And not only that, but scripture, like there's a biblical case to be made for all three of those things. And I'll just say this last thing. There's a huge shift in the evangelical community, at least, of people who are eternal conscious tormentors who are moving to annihilationism. 
And many of them work for institutions or denominations where they'd lose their credentials or jobs if they said it. And so they're not coming out publicly. But it is, over the last 20 years, there's a vast number of people, including John Stott, who's one of our Anglican flag carriers. Like he's one of the first evangelicals to put his neck out there and say, I think I'm a annihilationist is how he called it. So that's, we're going to get into that. I think uh, I have, I have some suspicions and hunches, but it's, uh, I think I'm going to be agnostic about it. Um, because I don't want to lose my ordination. No, because uh, I really am. I'm in a place where I'm still trying to figure it out. And I'm not even sure I can. And we'll talk about what, what differences it make if you can't. And how do we live if we don't know? Hey, uh, parenthetically, too, I just thought of this. Um, if you're looking for some good uh, kind of light reading uh, about some of this stuff, because a lot of the reading about this stuff is not light. It's kind of heavy. Yeah, read your Bible. No, um, uh, I was going to say C.S. Lewis actually addresses a lot of these themes in some of his fiction. So The Magician's Nephew is an interesting book that's kind of like the prequel to the whole Narnia world. Uh, there's a character in there called Uncle Andrew who ends up, it's fascinating what, what happens to him uh, in the end. And, um, and also C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, just kind of a fable about heaven and hell. Um, people in hell can take bus tours to the outskirts of heaven and they're invited. They're, there's guides that meet them there. It's kind of a funny little story, uh, but it's profound in its understanding of sin and kind of what keeps people away from the presence of God. Um, that, that basically, you know, in the, in the story, the, anybody who wants to can come into heaven, but there's all kinds of reasons people end up saying, nah, I'm going to go back to hell. It's pretty fascinating. There's also a great, something great in the last battle too. Oh yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Further up and further in. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, there's a guy too that, that Aslan tells him that you were worshiping me all along. Oh yeah. I remember that. Yeah. That's pretty good too. <laughs> I want to recommend uh, this film, Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, it's kind of the 1970s version of C.S. Lewis. Uh, no. Uh, hey. <laughs> uh, I starred in one of those productions, Matt. Woo! Who were you? Who were you? I... You can mute yourself. <laughs> you, can mute no. I unmute. <laughs> no. you keep unmuting. You keep muting when I unmute. I was the drunk girl that got hit by a train. Yes, the drunk drunk girl number three <laughs> who got hit by a train. You yeah. for sure went to hell because you were drunk. Yeah. Totally. No, I was thinking it was because you got hit by a train. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, friends, actually, Josie, it was because you question God's, you know, rules about trees and which ones you can eat and not. That's actually the reason. <laughs> That's the reason. No questions here. Uh, hey, this week we're going to talk about um, Genesis as an origin story, how it fits, how it situates the people of Israel in their time and place and the things that the things that the imagination it gives them for who they are and who God is. We'll come back here next Tuesday night. We're going to talk about other origin stories. 
and we're going to hold them up and just listen to how Genesis plays in that world. Okay. Everybody get your pets. Yep. Cute animal contest. Rocky's <laughs> winning. Cutest animal. <laughs> oh, Sharon. Uh, everybody get a squirrel. <laughs> awesome. Uh, go get our fish. Uh, anyway, everybody, great to be with you tonight. This looks like it's going to work pretty well. Super excited that uh, to be in this class with you. And we'll see you Sunday. Okay. Grace and peace, everyone. <laughs> Good night. Thank <laughs> you.